It's amazing to me how quickly children can go from being best friends to trying to tear each other's heads off. The emotional swings from I love you so much to never playing with you ever again is remarkable. I'm not talking about my kids, but you know, some kids are like that. They really can't be blamed for this because children are still learning to think beyond themselves. They typically are thinking about what they want in that moment. The hope is that as we grow up, we learn to think about others and what they need and what they want. However, sometimes we can see adults acting like children. As we read the scripture this morning, I'd like to invite you to pay close attention to the emotions of the people listening to Jesus. Look for the emotional swing from being amazed and excited about Jesus' teaching to being enraged to the point of trying to take his life. It comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 21 to 30. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, A doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As we reflect on this story, let's think about it in three different sections, each with a question. What happens to excite the people to make them respond in amazement? And then, what happens to change their emotions to the point of rage? And then lastly, let's take a look at what happens after they respond and get so angry. First, what did Jesus do that amazed them? In order to answer this question, we have to go back to the verses right before the ones that we just read. The ones we just read began by by Jesus saying, this scripture has been fulfilled. Well, we need to know what scripture is Jesus talking about. After Jesus' baptism, he spent 40 days fasting and dealing with temptation in the desert. After that, we're told 
uh, a general statement about what he did in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. It simply says this. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. So the news is traveling about this Jesus who is filled with the Spirit. Then Jesus returns to Nazareth, where he had been raised. They knew him as a young boy. And he goes to the synagogue and he stands up on the Sabbath. And he takes the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And here is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To let the oppressed go free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After reading this, we're told that he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and sits down. Now, this might sound strange to us, but this was the custom of the day. The teacher would stand up, read from the scroll, roll it up, give it back to the attendant, and sit down to teach. Now, Phil, I think this is a custom we should bring back. We should put a big comfy chair up here in the middle of the stage and Read the scripture and, and have a seat. That's what they did. And then Luke tells us that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It seems kind of like a strange sentence to add to this story. It seems pretty obvious. Jesus was there to teach. They came to hear teachings. He read the scroll. He sits in the teacher's chair. Of course, everybody's watching. What is he going to say next? They want to know. But Luke adds this line. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It adds something to the story to explicitly say the eyes of everyone were fixed on him. It expresses a tension that was left between the time that Jesus reads the scripture, and when he speaks again, he finishes reading the scroll, he sits down, and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. This was a passage that Jewish listeners would have been familiar with, this passage from Isaiah. They pointed to it as a description of what the Messiah would do one day, sometime in the future, when God sends the Messiah to save Israel. In this silent tension, as Jesus sits down and all the eyes are upon him, the question on all of their minds would have been, what is Jesus going to teach us about this passage that is about the Messiah? And this catches us up with the passage that we began with, which simply said, Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. An audacious claim. Jesus doesn't say, as, as many rabbis would have said before him, One day God will send 
a Messiah to save us, which will fulfill this scripture. He doesn't even say someday soon God will send a Messiah. No, Jesus says today this scripture has been fulfilled. Past tense. The Messiah is here. Think of the excitement that would cause. Not only has God sent him his Messiah, but they know him. He's from Nazareth. This is Joseph's son, they say. The Messiah is from Nazareth, their hometown. Surely now they will get to share in the glory and receive special treatment because they are the hometown of God's Messiah. Have you all noticed that towns love to claim famous people that are from their town? Louisville loves to claim Muhammad Ali. Lexington claims George Clooney. Now in the first service I said Georgetown claims the actor Steve Zahn and I had some of the people in the, in the first service say, who's Steve Zahn? Which my generation knows Steve Zahn. <laughs> but I was told by somebody else to say Georgetown claims Elijah Craig. Yeah? Does Georgetown claim Elijah Craig? And half the counties of Kentucky and Illinois claim Abraham Lincoln. Whether he was born there or he lived there for a week or he grew up there, we all claim it. Nazareth is going to get to claim the Messiah. Trump's all of it. It's easy to see the excitement, the amazement. This is incredible. Jesus, Joseph's son from our town, the Messiah. That leads us to our next question. What happens to change their amazement, their excitement, to emotions of pure rage? Jesus seems to anticipate how they are feeling in this moment. Because he responds by quoting a couple of, of proverbs and then referencing some Old Testament scriptures. Here's what he says. He tells them that surely they are going to quote to him the proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. Now this proverb was likely a known proverb of that day. Uh, it actually can be found in some classical Greek writings. It isn't super clear at first why Jesus is saying this is what they would be saying to him. Doctor, cure yourself. It becomes clearer when he goes on to say, and you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. They want to see Jesus do things in Nazareth, not just in Nazareth, but for Nazareth, that they heard that he has done elsewhere. Jesus, you've done these miracles in Capernaum, Let's see him here. Now, so far, he hasn't said anything that would upset the people in the synagogue. In fact, I imagine the crowd would be thinking, well, yeah, that is what we're thinking. Doctor, cure yourself. Do your miracles here. Let's see it. That's what we want. It's the next proverb, Jesus says, that's, that begins to change the attitudes of the people. Jesus now says, truly I tell you, 
No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. When reading this story, you can sense the mood in the room shifting from amazement and joy to an uneasiness. People would be thinking, well, why wouldn't we accept you here, Jesus? To explain why, Jesus references two Old Testament stories, two Old Testament prophets, two prophets of the Old Testament that are heroes of the Jewish faith. First, Jesus references the great prophet Elijah. During a famine, Elijah is sent by God to this widow. And this widow has a son. And he, he shows up and says, I'm hungry, can I have some food? And the widow says, actually, this is all we have left, enough for one little meal. We were just going to eat it and give up and die. Because of this famine, we have nothing. And Elijah stays with them and provides food for them, miraculously, taking care of their deepest need. But then at some point, the son gets sick and dies. And then Elijah prays to God, and God raises this son to new life. It's an incredible story of God caring for people in a time of their greatest need through a prophet. But here's the problem. The widow was from Sidon, an area north of Israel, not Israel. So during a famine, when people everywhere were hungry, God sent his prophet to care for someone who wasn't even an Israelite. The story can be found in 1 Kings chapter 17. The next Old Testament prophet that Jesus refers to is Elijah's successor, Elisha. While Elisha was a prophet, the commander of, of a foreign army from Aram, a man named Naaman, came to him to be healed from leprosy. It too is an amazing story of God meeting someone's greatest need through his prophet. But again, just like the widow from Sidon, Naaman, he's not an Israelite. He was from Syria. Sidon and Syria. They're actually two of the more disliked areas by the Israelites. And so back to the synagogue as Jesus is teaching. He's just revealed that he is the greatest of the great prophets, the Messiah, come from God to rescue his people. Then he immediately tells two stories of prophets doing great works for people in need. But the stories take place in Sidon and Syria to two non-Israelites. The people listening were hoping for a Messiah that was coming to put Israel back in power, to restore Israel to its place of prominence. And not just that, they get to the privilege of having the Messiah come from their hometown in Nazareth. And now they're hearing that this Messiah is going to help others, not just them. Verse 28 says, When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled 
with rage. They were filled with rage because the Messiah was there, but he wasn't there to pour out his blessings upon them. Our last question, what happens when they get so angry? Verse 29 says, They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. Seems extreme. Uh, Sources indicate that this was often how a stoning would begin. When I read, read biblical stories that talk about stoning, I always just imagine people just picking up rocks near them. But apparently often stonings would begin with someone being hurled off a cliff and then the stones being dropped afterwards. Morbid to think about, I know. Roman rule and Jewish law both stated very clearly that before any sort of stoning or any type of execution took place, something had to happen first. A trial. A trial and conviction would be needed before any sort of execution could occur. But this mob was so against what Jesus was saying that they were ready to knowingly break the Roman rule and their own Jewish law to get rid of him. They had heard Jesus' proclamation as a promise from God that they would be blessed. But in hearing that it was for others, they turned immediately. Let's go back and look at that scroll again from Isaiah that Jesus read. Look at who Jesus was saying he was anointed to come and help. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yet somehow when Jesus stands up and reads that and says, this is happening now, the people say, well, that's for us. Nowhere in that does it say that God has anointed Jesus to bring good news to the Israelites only. Yet those in the synagogue that day wanted the good news to be for them and them alone. Now we may think, how ridiculous, how selfish. But similar things still take place today. The temptation in modern Christianity is still to focus on what can God do for me? What can I get from God? Some people go from church to church hoping they'll get something out of it looking for something that they need. Our prayers are often focused on getting something that we want from God. But Jesus' hard message for those in the synagogue that day was that sometimes, sometimes, the blessings aren't for you. This has always been the case. Elijah and Elisha provided blessings for those outside of Israel when there were people inside of Israel. There were widows inside of Israel. There were people with leprosy inside of Israel. I wonder how the story would have ended if the people in that synagogue had responded 
by saying, how can we join in the work that you have been anointed to do, Jesus? Jesus had proclaimed good news for the poor and the oppressed. Sometimes we can be too quick to to spiritualize these words and say, I'm oppressed by sin and in bondage to to, to the slavery of sin and and God has come to rescue me from that. And while that can be true, we're going to, at the end of the service, we're going to close by singing Amazing Grace with the added chorus, My Chains Are Gone. We do believe that Jesus has come to set us free from the bondage of of sin. But before we get there, we need to read read Jesus' words for what they are. Good news for the poor, for the blind, for the oppressed. And so again, I wonder how this story would have ended if these people that day had said, how can we join in with the anointed work of Jesus? Instead of asking what Jesus would do for them. The good news The gospel is still meant to be good news for the poor, for the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. If we make the good news all about us, like the people in Nazareth tried to do, we run the risk of becoming a mob of people who've gotten rid of the real Jesus. The ending of this story is perfect. It's equal parts super hopeful and super terrifying. It simply says, but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. He passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Jesus is going on his way. Jesus is getting on with his mission that he has been anointed to do. In this story, Jesus reveals who he is, reveals his true identity and mission. And when the people didn't want to join in with that, he moves on his way to get back to the work of proclaiming the good news. The people in Nazareth that day missed out on an opportunity to join in in the mission of the Messiah. You and I are faced with this same decision each and every day. Are we going to join in with the mission of Jesus, the Messiah? Or are we going to try to make the gospel all about us? Are we going to forget that Jesus' message was for those in society that had been rejected and oppressed? If we do, he's going to get on with his mission without us. In a moment, we're going to receive communion. And when we do so, we are receiving the good news. We are receiving the gospel. And like the people in the synagogue that day in Nazareth, we are receiving the Messiah. But in doing so, we are receiving a mission 
to identify with the side of the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. In taking communion, we are committing to be one in ministry to all the world, not just the parts we like. We're committing to the ministry of the anointed one who came to serve the oppressed. I said this ending is is both hopeful and terrifying. It's hopeful because as Christians, we want Jesus' mission to continue. And the story teaches us that there's nothing humans can do that's going to prevent Jesus from getting on with his mission. His kingdom is here. His kingdom is coming. That's the hopeful part. The terrifying part is if we become like the people in Nazareth, so focused on what we can get out of it, then we're going to miss out on it altogether. Because Jesus can pass through the midst of us just like he passed through the midst of them and go on his way. So as we come to the table this morning, let's receive that mission. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be able to be said about me or us as a community. That he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Let's receive the gospel. Let's receive the good news this morning. Through this story. Through communion. And let's join in the anointed mission of Jesus to the poor and the oppressed. Where Jesus will pass through our midst and go on his way.